Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Ezra Ishmael Young, a civil rights attorney based in New York City, whose litigation and scholarship focuses on trans rights. We will discuss his article, What the Supreme Court Could Have Heard in R.G. V.G.R. Harris Funeral Homes v. EEOC and Amy Stevens, which will be published in the California Law Review online. So welcome to the show, Ezra. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, the, really, the pleasure is super all mine here. I mean, I thought this article was really great, obviously super timely, but also really creative in a lot of ways that I don't always see in law review articles, like a really great read. So congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> so um, I was kind of familiar with this litigation because I've talked to other people who've been thinking about it and similar issues. But I suspect a lot of listeners may not be that familiar with the case, what happened, and why it's so important. So I wonder if you could kind of briefly describe the background of the litigation that you're engaging with in this paper. Sure thing. Um, so the underlying case is a Title VII employment discrimination case originally filed by the EOC uh, in, I think, about 2014. Um, at, at issue is uh, basically whether Amy Stevens, a transgender woman, was discriminated against on the basis of sex. This is what happened. Uh, Amy Stevens worked as a funeral director at a regional funeral home chain in sort of rural Michigan for about six years. Um, And then she told her employer and the rest of her colleagues that she was going to undergo a gender transition from male to female. She wrote them sort of a a heartwarming letter about, you know, why she was transitioning. She didn't want to be a distraction to anyone, but she really needed to do this um, for herself so that she'd feel you know, good about herself and you know, deal with her medical condition. Um, unfortunately, her employer did not react well to this uh, letter, to this proposition that she transitioned. Um, she was told specifically that she needed to be fired. She couldn't be a funeral director anymore for them because essentially she wouldn't look right wearing a dress at work. Um, it's sort of a weird fact underlying this case. Um, this was a funeral home chain that had been around for several decades, never had a woman be a funeral director before, and had a very, very specific sex-based uh, dress code. So the proposition that she would be female and not look right to this employer just was a straw too far. So what kind of happened in the lower court litigation and sort of how was the question at stake uh, sort of situated within similar cases that other courts have, have heard around the same issue? Okay. Um, so at the time it was filed, the case was initially litigated just by the EEOC, which is completely normal. The EEOC is, of course, a federal agency that enforces federal non-discrimination laws. So sometimes they take cases um, that sort of push a certain legal theory or simply just reinforce a certain legal theory in the courts. Uh, they do it all the time. But um, in 2014, they first started doing this for transgender uh, workers. At the time when it was filed in the Sixth Circuit, um, it was the law of the Sixth Circuit, well settled for more than a decade, that transgender people are protected by sex discrimination. The district court didn't particularly have a problem with that. There were some odd wrinkles because only the federal agency was trying to enforce the law at the time as to sort of whether the employer may or may not have a religious exemption. Religious exemption would apply if only the 
federal agency was trying to enforce the law wouldn't impl- wouldn't apply if the worker had brought her own suit, which is a completely sidetracked but complicated reason. Um, so she lost at the lower court, but technically only because the federal government was representing her. When the case got to the Sixth Circuit, um, the ACLU came in to represent her. Uh, intervening on appeal as a party. And at that point, the Sixth Circuit sort of was able to sidestep this religious exemption question um, and ultimately found under the law that it already had in its circuit, again, longstanding, that she was protected under Title VII and that specifically, for other reasons, the thing that happened to her was a kind of sex discrimination. Right. So the Supreme Court took cert and recently heard oral argument in this case. I mean, just to kind of further clarify for listeners, I wonder if you could kind of just set the stage as to why this particular case is so important when it comes to trans rights, especially in the employment context. Sure thing. Um, So it's important for for a few reasons. So one, uh, employment rights is for any group of marginalized people are are super important. Transgender people in particular uh, face staggering rates of under and unemployment. So being able to uh, invoke federal laws that protect everyone around the nation equally is super, super important. Another sort of doctrinal reason why the case is important is because Lots of federal sex discrimination laws and some federal constitutional law is sort of interwoven with how the courts treat Title VII. So the fear is that if uh, Amy loses this case under Title VII, that might mean that lower courts interpret this as meaning transgender people are not protected by sex discrimination laws in any variety of other contexts, including um, education, healthcare, things like that. Another worry is that... Um, that might have a ripple effect in state courts under state laws. Many state courts defer to how federal courts interpret sex discrimination laws. So they might interpret their own state laws differently if the Supreme Court decides Amy is not protected under federal law. Right. So not only important in its own right, but with a lot of potential follow-on ripple effects as well. Um, so in, in the article, you're pretty critical of the approach that the ACLU took, uh, on Stevens's behalf, both in the briefing and especially in, in the oral argument. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what approach they took to this particular case, sort of why they took that approach and, and why you think that's a problem or why it was a mistake. Um, so ostensibly the approach that they took, um, and I'll focus narrowly on the oral argument because their briefing didn't quite stake out this really odd position that they took at the oral argument. At the oral argument, they took a position that Title VII, which the text reads, uh, essentially, um, it, it outlaws discrimination in employment, quote unquote, because of sex. So the ACLU took this very odd position. They told the court that for the purposes of this case, they could construe sex as meaning biological sex or sex assigned at birth. Those aren't statutory terms and more problematic still. It essentially meant that they invited the court to deem Amy Stevens a transgender woman as if she was a man. And it created this obvious weird tension in a case where you know what was most important to Amy was that she be able to hold herself out and live openly as a woman. Meanwhile, her own counsel is calling her a man. That sort of, you know, is jarring, odd, off-putting. Unfortunately, it also feeds into many of the stereotypes and many of the bad arguments that Amy's employer was raising to the court. So one obvious, you know, issue is 
you know, if Amy is for the purpose of Title VII a man, what right does she have to want to dress and act in the workplace as if she's a woman? That doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make sense on the text, and it doesn't make sense just on the logic of the argument itself. Mm. Well, so you have some sort of formal arguments as to why this was a mistake, like kind of tactically to take this approach to the argument. But but as you just alluded, I mean, also some sort of deeper, more kind of philosophical objections to the decision to frame the question in in this way. I mean, I wonder if you could touch briefly on on both of those. Okay. So tactically, uh, one way to look at this, and perhaps I'm looking at this more like a litigator than anything else right now. One way to look at this is, you know, how do we get to five votes, right? So we we know pretty much going into this case that we're going to get the four liberal justices no matter what. So it's all about getting to five here. The easiest vote to pick up in this case in particular is Justice Gorsuch, which, you know, people following the case might have seen, you know, various op-eds talking about, you know, if Justice Gorsuch cares about textualism, it'll be a win for Amy. That, I think, is the right approach, but something that the ACLU overlooked for reasons that are unclear to me and my colleagues are that Justice Gorsuch had actually heard a case exactly like this before, more than a decade ago. He sat by designation on a panel in the Ninth Circuit. And in that case, Castle v. Maricopa County, Justice Gorsuch joined a panel opinion that basically took like what we call a strict textualist approach to the statute. Um, they basically held that there is no transgender exception to Title VII. Whatever we think about transgender people completely aside, just on the text, transgender people are protected. Consequences of protection are a little bit fuzzy in that opinion for reasons we need not get into here, but that's the particular point that we need to hit in Harris. Unfortunately, the ACLU completely ignored that just very basic textual argument. They tried to sort of dance around it, or as you know, Justice Roberts alluded to during the oral argument, they kind of created too cute of an argument. They wanted to be able to call Amy a man, but not a man in certain circumstances. They wanted to say that certain groups of men, as the ACLU framed it, have a special right to be treated as women, but not all other men do. And that was just deeply, deeply, deeply confusing. It doesn't work for the textualists on the court. Now, philosophically, it also raises sort of you know, different kinds of questions, right? So, you know, should counsel for transgender people, for instance, be willing to invoke the perspective of the discriminator to try to, def- to try to represent their uh, clients in court? Probably a bad idea. Normally, counsel doesn't, you know, openly denigrate the dignity of their clients in front of the court. It's usually, you know, a bad idea. That's not specific to transgender cases I've heard, though. Those are the only cases I've litigated, right? Um, so it sort of, you know, raises attention, um, especially because, you know, given the political climate we're in right now, the justices are part of it. Uh, whether they want to admit it or not, um, you know, where people are already concerned, where people are already cautious, where people are already thinking maybe this is too new, we're not ready yet, counsel sending signals to the bench that maybe they too are uncomfortable with who their client is, maybe they too don't quite know what's going on. That's not good. That's not the sort of uh, signals you need to be sending to the court in a case like this. Well, so I, wa- I really want to return to some of those philosophical issues later. But but first, I, I was really fascinated by the kind of textualist argument that you made as to why this might be appealing to textualist justices. Because, you know, we normally think of textualism as being like kind of, quote unquote, conservative. I, I wonder if you could just expand a little bit on the sort of 
textualist reading in favor of trans rights. And, and in particular, I really liked your religion analogy, which I found very effective in understanding why this works so well. Sure thing. Well, uh, I'll, I'll just say at the threshold, one thing that many people miss about transgender rights cases, and in particular, these statutory sex discrimination cases, they sort of enter them thinking that ideological conservatives are going to be against transgender rights. In actuality, it has been just the opposite. It has been some of the most conservative judges at the circuit court level and at the district court level for about the last 30 years or so, who have come out very strongly in favor of transgender workers in these Title VII cases and other similar cases. Most of them have done it, whether they call it textualism or not, using a textual approach to the statute. They literally, just like Justice Gorsuch did in the Castle opinion, literally look at the statute, say, you know, this bans discrimination on the basis of sex. Congress didn't say transgender people aren't protected they must be protected. It's a very basic, easy textualist argument. I think it's the most obvious one. There are, as you alluded to, Brian, um, sort of other, I'd say, textualist arguments and textualist affirming arguments. One of them is the religion analogy. Um, so Title VII, of course, prohibits discrimination on the basis of many different protected statuses. You know, Sex is one of them. Race is one of them. Religion is also one of them. Sometimes we try to explain this textual uh, argument for transgender coverage by making an analogy to religion. The analogy more or less goes with, you know, if you're, if you're going to say that we, we ban religious uh, or discrimination in employment on the basis of religion, we don't need to get into employers sort of making metaphysical claims about who does or doesn't count as a Catholic, right? If an employer, you know, refuses to hire a Catholic, and that's why they didn't hire that person. That sounds like religious discrimination. Trying to you know, delve deep into whether this particular worker was sufficiently Catholic sort of defeats the purpose of the statute, right? Um, another thing about religion that makes it a really good analogy for the transgender cases is you know, people change the religion somewhat frequently in the United States. So same situation. If an employer has someone who was raised Catholic, but later in life converted to uh, Mormonism, for example, um, if that employer decided they didn't want to hire that person because they hated Catholics or they hated Mormons, in either situation, that would be religious discrimination. Religion was taken into account. Doesn't matter um, sort of what undergirding philosophical opinion the employer had about religion, they were targeting that person's religion, perceived or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I found that really a, a, an, a very helpful way of framing the problem, especially because um, of the way you sort of noted that it's it's not about sort of why the employer is discriminating on the basis of a protected status, but that they're considering it all in the first place. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, a really, really helpful analogy that, that helps a lot of people sort of see it. It also, and there's a paper I cite uh, in the article, it also helps us better understand sort of the meets and bounds of religious discrimination too, which is also super, super helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, so in the paper, you take a, a really unusual and I think I found quite effective af- approach to your argument by providing a kind of counterfactual approach, potential approach to the oral argument, like kind of how the case could have been argued as opposed to how it actually was argued. I wonder if you could sketch that out 
a little bit and talk a little bit about why you chose to took that approach. I mean, did you have other kind of models or inspirations for thinking about writing the paper in that way? And why did you think that it would be especially effective in this context? Yeah, so when I, I went through a lot of different drafts of the paper, um, the earlier versions, I sort of made an affirmative argument, explained the background sort of doctrine as to why transgender people are protected by sex discrimination. And I had another section where I sort of picked apart and critiqued the oral argument. Um, and some of my friends and colleagues uh, who I asked to review the paper, I, I, I sort of I felt uneasy because I felt like something was missing, but I couldn't really pinpoint why. And uh, one of the people I sent the paper to, Devin Carbato, who's uh, based out at UCLA, uh, actually suggested that I try this counterfactual approach. Um, and he sort of pinpointed exactly why it was needed, um, that people wouldn't really understand how big of a miss the ACLU's approach to the oral argument was unless they could actually hear, even if just you know sort of fictionalized, hear how the argument could have sounded differently. Right. So if we didn't call Amy a man, what would that have sounded like? How might that have uh, better answered some of the real questions the justices had? Um, and Devin actually pointed to me, I think it was a piece by Cheryl Harris, where she uh, did a similar sort of thing uh, in the wake of the affirmative action art, uh, oral arguments in 2003. And it was highly effective there. Mm. Well, so what were some of the particular points that you wanted to make or illustrate in sort of presenting this narrative version of how the argument would have looked differently? Um, because, I mean, I, I, you know, were there, were there particular issues that you thought were most important to illustrate? And, and, and also, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the sort of more narrative strategies you used, because there was a kind of interiority to some of the description, like kind of how these arguments might have affected the way particular justices thought about the case, which I found really interesting and kind of helpful in in understanding your thinking. Yeah, so um, the, the basic approach I took to the, the counterfactual was I honestly just put myself in the shoes of the lawyer. How would I have argued this case? based upon my own experience and based upon my own study of, you know, what these justices were worried about, both based on what they were actually saying on the transcript of the real oral argument and sort of what their background sort of legal philosophies were about weird little employment discrimination doctrines that some of them have, you know, deep vested feelings about weird, you know, corners of this area of law more generally. Um, so again, I, I, I sort of tried to, to frame it as if I had done it, um, try and, you know, part of that was marking sort of what difference it might've made if an openly transgender lawyer had made the argument, what might the court have taken away from that direct experience interacting with a transgender person, uh, at an oral argument, uh, openly transgender person has never actually argued a case in the Supreme court. So this would have provided perhaps a much needed opportunity for them to interact with someone who is transgender. Um, the other sort of thing I wanted to get through this um, was to sort of show that it was possible to more directly answer some of the quote unquote hard questions that the justices presented at oral arguments. So some lawyers who don't do many transgender cases, for instance, might think that like the best thing to do if judges ask about restroom segregation is to just avoid the question. Well, that's actually a really, really terrible strategy. It ticks just judges off. Um, and it also makes your case seem a lot weaker than it actually is. 
usually what judges are looking for, and I think what the justices were looking for in the Harris case was some sort of framework, how to understand that this isn't really a novel or new problem. They already have the tools in their toolbox to deal with this particular issue. It already maps onto the case law that they already know and they're already deeply invested in. And to just sort of walk them through allay concerns um, and sort of show how this isn't actually disruptive. This isn't actually that new. It's, it's, it's very similar. The last main thread of this sort of narrative strategy um, was to make sure that the court sort of came to see or could come to see Amy Stevens is not being that different from all of the other workers who they've heard from in these Title VII cases, meaning sex discrimination cases. So not avoiding the fact that she's transgender, that's obviously why she's before the court, but explaining how her plight, how, for instance, her employer literally telling her, you're fired because you don't look right wearing a dress in our workplace, sounds a lot like and is in fact exactly like the same thing that the Supreme Court has time and again said employers absolutely can't do, like in cases like Price Waterhouse. Price Waterhouse has no right under Title VII to tell its women employees to act more like women or act more like specific kinds of women. That's the very evil that sex discrimination laws are supposed to target. So again, trying to put Amy Stevens' case and her experience uh, in parallel with sort of the the common and awful experiences that many American women have dealt with in the workplace and trying to explain how recognizing Amy as protected isn't so much a trans rights issue. It is, but it isn't in the sense that it is just an extension and a furthering of the understanding that women are protected from sex discrimination in the workplace as women. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was especially effective in showing why the ACLU's approach was so misguided, because it essentially makes the same point, but without undercutting the experiences of the actual litigant. Yeah, I'm I'm glad that landed well for you. (laughs) Um, Well, so uh, just for the interest of listeners who may not have heard the argument, because I think a lot of people haven't, I wonder if you could just briefly outline your explanation of why the bathroom issue is not a real issue and why it's already addressed under discrimination laws as they currently exist. Sure. So let's just briefly sketch out what the bathroom issue is. So as the employer uh, tries to put it in this case, and as is sometimes argued in similar cases, um, they were concerned that if Amy, a transgender woman, were to use the women's restroom at the workplace, that her co-workers, uh, non-transgender women, would complain. And that basically there was no way to resolve this problem, right? But that's not actually true. Um, you know, Title VII in particular, the court has dealt with this problem before. So what do you do if an employer feels like it potentially has liability um, on both sides of two sets of employees complaining about something? They addressed that in Ricci uh, about a decade ago. Ricci was the sort of the firefighters uh, testing case. Um, where white firefighters really wanted to use a test that uh, firefighters of color thought discriminated against firefighters of color. And the issue before the court was how, how, do, how does an employer uh, navigate that sort of problem, right? And they actually came up with a really, really good solution. It was basically that employers can't just bow out of the problem and recklessly just discriminate against whichever group they decide they want to preference just because both, both sets of uh, coworkers are complaining about something. They actually have to take a deep look and see, look behind the reasons they're complaining and see if there's actual liability there. Meaning if a group of uh, employees is complaining about something that doesn't actually lead to legal liability, 
you can't just take their side because you want to. And that's essentially the exact same sort of situation that transgender restroom access offers, right? So, you know, people might complain about it, but is there any there there to their complaint? Is it actually discriminatory to allow a transgender woman to use a women's restroom? It's not. Um, does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, yeah. And it, it sort of reframes the concern outside of the kind of popular sphere and to within the sphere of, of actual employment law and how we actually do Title VII litigation. And I thought that was a really helpful sort of way of sort of recontextualizing the, the problem. Um, in addition, one of the things I thought was really interesting in the paper was how you used the analogy of the gay rights movement and its sort of gradual success in um, kind of changing hearts and minds, as it were, as an argument in favor of visibility of trans people in this litigation, both as litigants and as as advocates. And I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well and why you think it's important. Yes, I, I'd say I, I used it as a loose analogy, but I, I think it was effective in the sense that um, when we study, or at least when I was still in law school, when we study many of the seminal uh, gay rights cases that the Supreme Court heard, you know, the sodomy cases, and now more recently, the marriage equality cases, um, it you know, sometimes we talk about how, well, the court just sort of screwed these cases up uh, earlier in the 1980s when they first started hearing them. And then magically, they sort of came to their senses and came to the right decision. But, you know, that that is and isn't true. One of the main, one of the really important things that helped the court sort of come to understand the underlying legal issues uh, better was the fact that they had gay law clerks that they knew who eventually became the lawyers who started arguing these cases in front of them. Over time, the court, the justices became more comfortable with gay people. So it seemed less shocking for them to interpret laws in a way that protected gay people's rights. Um, you know, several of the justices, at least off record, have, have you know, suggested as much. Some of the law clerks who, you know, clerked for these justices have said as much on and off record. Um, the problem with, you know, transgender cases in part is not that the legal arguments aren't strong. They're exceptionally strong. It's that many of the justices have absolutely no familiarity with transgender people outside of these weird, you know, odd disputes that come to their court. Um, and so this might be an instance where the justices simply getting to know transgender people, literally having an interaction with an openly transgender lawyer, even if they're not talking about the fact that that person's transgender, but seeing these people, knowing that these people exist, knowing that transgender lawyers can contribute to society, that they can function in workplaces, just like, you know, at their court and outside their court, that might be helpful to sort of allay the concerns that this isn't really that new, this isn't really that scary. And maybe there is some merit to these legal arguments that they weren't necessarily able to perceive before simply because they were scared. They, they didn't understand. It seemed too new. It seemed too foreign. Mm, well, so I, I can't help but wonder, I mean, were there transgender lawyers other than yourself, obviously, available to argue these cases or this particular case before the Supreme Court? And I mean, I'm assuming as the case, why do you think that the advocates didn't choose one of those lawyers as the person to make the oral argument? 
Yeah, so I, 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 there were transgender lawyers who could argue it um, and who probably, to, to be quite honest, would have done an amazing job. Uh, one, one of those people who comes to mind is Shannon Mentor. He's the legal director of the National Center for Transgender, National Center for Lesbian Rights. Amazing advocate, argued a good number of appellate cases, super eloquent, just awesome human being, super smart. Um, there are folks like Shannon who could have argued it. Uh, ACLU didn't go that direction. My hunch in part is because ACLU normally wants to argue their own cases, um, sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. Um, and they tend to give those big, you know, shiny arguments like this one um, to what we call familiar faces, people who have argued in front of the court before. Um, problem with that is if you if you preference familiar faces, you will in uh, Jamie Santos, she's an appellate litigator who talks about this all the time with just women more generally. If you only preference familiar faces, you're going to lock out all sorts of people who historically have not been afforded the opportunities to argue cases in front of the Supreme Court. There's no way that you're going to get more women to argue cases if, for instance, you only go with all of the men who traditionally argue cases simply because they've argued before. And you're definitely not going to get any transgender people because no transgender person has ever argued a case in front of the Supreme Court. Mm, yeah, well, I thought this this article in particular was a very effective brief uh, in opposition or countering the idea that somehow it's always wise to go with familiar faces because clearly uh, the familiar faces failed to see a lot of the arguments that and and reasons for making those arguments that you explain I think very effectively in in this paper. Um, Ezra, I wonder if in closing you could reflect a little on the sort of broader philosophical questions that this issue presents for arguing for trans rights going forward? I mean, are there sort of big picture observations you would make about what you think would make for effective litigation strategy and, you know, how to think not just about particular doctrinal arguments, but kind of more philosophical issues that people advocating on behalf of transgender rights uh, ought to keep ought to keep in the forefront as they're thinking about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Yeah, I think one important takeaway is that we all have to sort of better interrogate our assumptions about how courts and which courts will be receptive to transgender rights claims. So again, like we discussed earlier, a lot of people just assume that ideological conservatives are going to be super anti-transgender rights. But that is just on the record, not true. They tend to be the ones who are most pro-trans rights, which is odd. It's an outlier thing, but you, you really have to know the case law to know it. Um, another thing that's sort of like a larger philosophical takeaway is that there might in some cases be simple, just implicit accrued knowledge that transgender people and transgender lawyers in particular have about these cases. We've done a lot of these cases. We've done a lot of them in red states. We've done a lot of them in front of hostile benches. We know ways to work around, you know, things that seem impossible, like the bathroom question or, you know, you know, questions about the, the, the science behind sex designation. These aren't new questions for us. These are things that we've thought about for a long time. People like Chen and Mentor have been writing about them for decades. Not difficult for us to think through them, even if they're sort of new, fuzzy, or uncomfortable for other people. Um, last sort of thing uh, I think would be important sort of as a larger philosophical takeaway is, you know, winner, winner, loss, and Harris, 
and it can go either way. Though, you know, if it's a win, it's it's not based upon the argument the ACLU made. It's because the justices really dug deep, to be quite honest. But win or loss, sort of how do we prevent something like this from happening again? How, how do how do we make sure that um, the, the structures that we put in place to represent and push forward transgender rights are sort of doing the work on the inside, too, meaning making sure that they're promoting transgender lawyers to be lead counsel in cases, to make these um, arguments, to make sure that the justices are exposed to transgender lawyers who are at the top of their profession. These things matter in the end, and they very well might matter and might you know, determine the outcome in this particular case. Awesome. Well, Ezra, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, I thought the article was fantastic. I hope that listeners will check it out because there's a lot more in it than we were able to touch on in this conversation. And uh, I hope it uh, potentially functions as an effective, uh, quote unquote, amicus article as the Supreme Court is reflecting on this case. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. Any other way